In just a moment, we'll read from God's word, uh, Matthew chapter 19, and listen also to the insights of those who have lived before us uh, uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24. If you'd like to follow along, that is found on page 934 in the songbook from which we've just sang. Before we read, let's pray for God to enlighten our hearts and our minds. The prayer is printed in the bulletin. Let's pray aloud together. Gracious God, you have kindly visited us through your spirit and in your word. We are all here in your presence to hear what you have ordained from eternity past to speak to us. Cause us to receive your word and grant repentance that leads to life. Glorify yourself by giving us and strengthening in us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're reading Matthew chapter 19 because in our, typically in our evening service, we're working our way through the, uh, the summary of the word of God as it is given to us in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we've come to a chapter on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And so Jesus speaks to those themes uh, in Matthew chapter 19 as elsewhere. Let's give our attention to God's word. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Listen also, if you would, to this chapter on marriage and divorce from the Westminster Confession of Faith, page 934 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. Clearly a much-needed teaching in our day. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, and of the church with an holy seed and for preventing of uncleanness. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry, 
who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord, and therefore such as profess the true Reformed religion. They should not marry with infidels, papists, that is, uh, members of the Roman Catholic Church, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties so as those persons may live together as man and wife. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract, that is, after becoming engaged, being detected before marriage, giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another, as if the offending party were dead. Although the corruption of man may be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Amen. We know from our study of the Word of God that the primary calling of every person is to glorify and enjoy God. And in our pursuit of God, we are ultimately responsible for ourselves. But we do not go through life alone. We need to know how to honor God in our relationships. And for most adults, our most influential relation is our spouse. Marriage, because of the influential character of the spouse in marriage, marriage will either help or hinder our walk with the Lord. Unlawful marriages harm the partners, harm their families, harm the church, and can even harm the generations to follow. And so piety demands that we understand God's rules for both establishing and dissolving a marriage. And I want to impress upon us at the start of this message that this is a call for all of us, no matter our age, no matter our station. This is true for children in the very earliest stages of preparing for marriage, which in my understanding is any age at all because we're beginning to think about marriage no matter how little we are. It's important that we form right conceptions of marriage as children. It's also true for singles old enough to no longer be considering marriage for themselves personally because we need to stand together 
against the forces that are trying to rewrite God's rules for marriage. And we must all do our part, no matter our age, no matter our station, to help prevent marriage failures, which are too common even in the church of Jesus Christ. And so I want to do two things this morning. First of all, consider in brief God's rules for marriage. And then second, God's rules for divorce. First then, God's rules for marriage. And that's, a, I think, a very important title for this or, or heading for this part of the sermon because God makes rules for marriage. We're not allowed as creatures to define the terms of any of our relationships. We draw those terms from God's word. And this is true for marriage also. We want to affirm that marriage is good. God made it. He calls the whole uh, realm of his created order good, even including marriage. But we also must confess that not all marriages are good, right? The fact that marriage as an institution is good does not bless all marriages, so-called. And this is so important because marriage brings two lives together into one. And so the two who are coming together must be truly compatible, Not compatible in a a superficial sense in which both parties have some uh, level of enjoyment with some activity or share some walk of life or political affiliation or anything, but truly compatible. And so the matter of compatibility raises this important question, first of all, who may marry? Who may marry? And scripture tells us, as the confession echoes uh, from Genesis 2, verse 24, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Between one man and one woman. This is speaking at the same time against both polygamy, that is, uh, the entering into marriage with more than one partner at a time, and uh, same-sex unions, which are sometimes called marriages. Um, Both of these, polygamy and homosexuality, violate God's intent and disfigure his symbol of the union between Christ and the church. You no longer have that symbol if you pursue polygamy or homosexuality. And so one man and one woman is the most elementary of all marital qualifications. And so it's no wonder that it is also the most fiercely confronted and attacked in our day because it is fundamental. It is to argue against uh, one man and one woman is to get at the very root of God's plan and design for marriage. It is the most fundamental of all marital qualifications. But it isn't the only one. There are other qualifications. Scripture teaches, uh, and the confession echoes, uh, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, that close relatives may not marry. 
perhaps for many reasons, but certainly one is that marriage is to be the start of a new family, not the twisting of, into, into one of existing family members of various relations. It's to be the start of a new family. Also, believers must not marry unbelievers because marriage is to be the start of a Christian family. What kind of a family is it if a, if a believer marries an unbeliever? It is not a Christian family. It is a, it's a mingled family. It's a confused family with uh, the spouses having different convictions and ideals that may also be passed on to their children. So marriage is to be the start of a Christian family. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, believers must only marry in the Lord. No disciple of Jesus should even consider a romantic relationship with anyone who does not share with them a passionate commitment to God's truth. Now, Scripture acknowledges, uh, um, especially in in 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll touch on, that there are situations in the church where uh, a husband and a wife are unequally yoked. The assumption, though, is that that change happened either before... uh, probably before either of them were professing Christians. Both were unbelievers, one becomes a Christian. Or tragically, both were Christians and one uh, apostatizes. And so there are situations, of course, in which genuine believers find themselves unequally yoked. And that is a place uh, that they must serve the Lord in. And it is, in fact, a high calling to serve in an unequally yoked marriage. But Paul says, do not enter into an unequally yoked marriage. And so the the point here is that that to have a God-honoring marriage, you must respect God's parameters, his boundaries. You must recognize, you must have a biblical answer to the question, who may marry? But you must also respect God's purposes for marriage. And that brings up the question then, not, not who should marry, But why should anyone marry? What is the purpose of marriage? And this is important for even for young children or even more important for older children. Why should I think about marriage? Uh, Why does God design marriage? Probably for me, unless I'm uniquely gifted with uh, satisfaction in Christ and control of my body and my thoughts. Why is marriage for me? And there's at least, there are at least three reasons why people should marry, especially God's people. Three reasons. First of all, this, marriage is for the mutual profit of husband and wife, for the mutual benefit, for the advantage, for the help of two people. Marriage partners help each other in their often mundane responsibilities, The idea of a helper suitable uh, comes up, first of all, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. There was no helper suitable for Adam. God had given him a task. It was rather mundane. It was to care for a garden. It was to name animals. But it was a high calling, a hard calling, and there was no helper for him. And so God gives him a wife who could help him, and surely he was to help her as well in her responsibilities. And so marriage is... For the help of the two partners, they help bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6 verse 2, often to 
can face trouble better than one, Ecclesiastes 4 says. But marriage is more than two people pooling their resources. We don't want to give the impression that marriage is sort of this this um, helpful arrangement in which two people doing their part can, uh, can be in a better place, as if simply uh, combining your bank account or having a lower uh, housing expense because you're now under one roof is the extent of what God is saying here. No, marriage is uh, for joyful companionship. For joyful companionship. The, the, the oneness of marriage can help combat loneliness. God says in Genesis 2, 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Not not that Adam lacked any resources, but he lacked companionship. And and so marriage can provide, help provide at least that, that companionship. Christian marriage should help also both partners follow Christ better together than they could alone. And so in a a host of ways, marriage is for the mutual profit of husband and wife. And we should look at marriage that way, that it's it's good, that it can actually help us to be better people, better Christians, uh, more faithfully trusting in Jesus Christ. So marriage is for the mutual profit of husband and wife. Second, God says marriage is for producing children. And let's first think of this from the perspective of the child. A loving, committed, biblical marriage is the best scenario for raising children. And we see that, don't we, sadly in homes where there is not a joyful, committed marriage. A parent doing their best to raise a child on their own or sometimes no parents. So, so marriage is the best context. It's the best soil for children to grow up in. Marriage is for producing children. God still ordains humans to fill and subdue the earth, but We ought to be doing so within the context of marriage. People are quite good still at filling the earth, but not always within the context of marriage. We should believe that God wants people to have children. Believers marry then for, as the confession says, the increase of mankind with legitimate issue. So there's a reflection there of that command to to fill the earth and subdue it. Increase mankind, but do it legitimately within the context of marriage so that there's a family in which those children are to be raised. I think this also perhaps not, uh, was not on the minds of the writers of the confession, but could speak to us about the myth of overpopulation. God hasn't rescinded his command to fill the earth. God didn't create an earth uh, that, couldn't be, that could be exhausted by people in fact, following his command to fill it. Overpopulation is a scare tactic that should be unpersuasive to biblical Christians. Believers uh, not only then procreate to fill the earth according to God's command, but also, as the confession says, to provide the church with an holy seed. 
It's not just the world that we're filling by having children. It's the church. And isn't it wonderful to look around and and see children? Children um, making their voices heard at the youngest of ages. Children growing and listening to, to sermons and respecting their mother and father. This is how we, in part, grow the church, to fill the church with a holy seed. Marriage is for producing children. This has prompted, I think rightly, one writer to say this, to acknowledge this. Sometimes uh, Christians cannot have children. And we recognize that as God's good providence for that couple. Sometimes Christians cannot have children, but... There needs to be a truly extraordinary reason for them to refuse to have children because it's God's ordinary plan to fill the earth with, a, with legitimate issue and the church with a holy seed. Marriage is for producing children. And then third, marriage is for preventing of uncleanness. What does that mean? Marriage is for the preventing of uncleanness. It means this, that God made us to want intimacy and to be sexually pure. There's some tension there, isn't there? God made us to want intimacy, but he also made us to be sexually pure. And so this tension, as the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it, this tension, in fact, requires marriage by those that have not the gift of continency. Drawing from uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. So what, what God is saying is, I've made you for, uh, for enjoyment of one another and for intimacy, and, and if you're able to properly harness that desire and keep your body... In, in all purity, if you have uh, a, 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 a special, unique devotion and satisfaction in the Lord and are able to control yourself sexually, you need not marry. And you have a special gift, and God bless you in that. But if you don't have those gifts, you must marry. You must pursue marriage. That's why the Westminster Larger Catechism also says that it is possible to sin by an undue delay of marriage, right? Putting off marriage while committing uh, fornication. That's a sin, to put off marriage, to tempt the Lord in that way. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you're not burning with passion, then that command isn't for you. But if you are, it is better to marry. Marriage will help those who sincerely want to abstain from sexual immorality and who also strive to control their own body in holiness and honor, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and 4. So if, if I could sum up this first point, we, we, what we see here is Scripture's simple formula for a good marriage. Scripture's simple formula for a good marriage. Number one, find a suitable partner. Don't find the perfect partner. You'll never find him or her. And even if you think you found the perfect partner, that person will change in time and their imperfections will be revealed. Find a suitable partner. A Christian, 
one who shares your basic convictions, not one who has some generic, ethereal uh, belief in God, but one who shares your heart for God. Find a suitable partner, number one. Second, marry for the right reasons, as we've considered them. And third, keep the vows to obey God's rules for marriage. Simple formula. But of course, we don't live in a simple world. Sadly, because of sin, marriages falter, and so we must also understand divorce. God also teaches us about divorce because we live in a fallen world. And so let's consider, second, the rules for divorce, primarily considered in sections five and six of this chapter. And I think it has never been a more important time to consider the rules for divorce. Modern marriage commitments are tenuous, are entered into lightly. Today, people feel entitled to escape a marriage that makes them unhappy because what is the chief end of man today? To be happy. And so if I'm in a relationship or a situation in which I find myself unhappy, I'm entitled to leave that relationship or that situation. And of course, with a determined will, anyone can find many reasons to leave a marriage. You can make your partner seem like the worst person in the world, giving you ample reasons to leave the marriage if you are so committed. And so the old question that was put to Jesus in the text that we read this morning is still relevant in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Although it was a test question, it's a good question. And the question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I'm unhappy with her. She's no longer the woman I married. She's changed. She's gotten sick. She's handicapped. She can't do this or can't do that or vice versa. Can I find any reason to divorce? And, and Jesus' answer is no. It is not lawful to divorce one's wife for any old cause. Husband and wife, Jesus goes on to say, teaching positively, should hold fast to one another. The two, after all, he says, are no longer one, uh, two, uh, but one flesh. And so what God has joined together, let not man separate Malachi chapter 2 verse 16 teaches us that God hates sinful divorce. And so then we might wonder, are there grounds for divorce? And what we learn from Jesus in Matthew 19 and elsewhere and Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that, and this is important for us to recognize, in his kindness, God allows, not requires, but allows for divorce in two instances. Adultery and what the confession calls willful desertion, reflecting on 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16. Adultery, that is sexual immorality outside of that marriage, or willful desertion, such abandonment of one spouse that that relationship cannot be restored. Sexual uh, immorality and willful desertion, both sins 
are radical violations of the terms of the covenant of marriage. Remember that marriage is a covenant. It's a binding agreement in which terms are agreed upon. And sexual immorality and willful desertion are radical violation of those terms. Think, think about it, first of all, in terms of, of sexual immorality. Sexual intimacy seals a marriage, consummates a marriage, is the, uh, the act which more than anything else says these two are now one. And so infidelity breaks that seal. An adulterous spouse invites a stranger into the marriage bed and cancels its holiness. The writer to the Hebrews says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. And the adulterer says, that doesn't matter to me. And so as that verse goes on to say, Hebrews 13, 4, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, and part of that judgment is allowing for the violated partner to leave the marriage. No matter how penitent the adulterer may be, uh, part of the judgment of committing adultery is that you, uh, uh, that your partner is able now to leave the marriage and lawfully divorce. Willful desertion, the second possible ground for divorce is similar in some ways to adultery. At the heart of marriage is a commitment to practice the one flesh reality, to go through life no longer as two people, but as one. And so when one partner refuses to live with a faithful spouse, The faithful spouse is not bound to remain in the marriage. And so Jesus is saying, in the kindness of God, divorce is possible. Often, at least in biblical times, divorce was a protection for the woman who would otherwise have been locked into a relationship with a man who's no longer doing the basic functions required by a husband. And so there's an element of kindness here. Divorce is possible, and yet, and this is so important, this is one of the reasons why this chapter on divorce and marriage is so helpful, is that no one may take it upon himself to divorce a spouse apart from due process. The confession talks about a process for divorce within the church that is so often not even considered today. And so we ought to ask that question then, what is the process for divorce within the church? And here's what we need to acknowledge, brothers and sisters. If we grant the church a role in establishing marriage, we must also allow the church to oversee what the confession calls a public and orderly course of proceeding when considering the dissolution of marriage. Do you understand? We, we come before 
the presence of God and the church and with the help of a minister to have a wedding. And then when it comes to dissolving a marriage, we say the church has no business involving itself in my marriage. If we're not willing to submit to the church in the possible dissolution of a marriage, we should stop conducting church weddings because it's a gross inconsistency. We are affirming that, that we are, if we're entering into marriage, we're doing so um, as part of a community overseen by leaders with real authority and real wisdom whom the Lord, that the Lord has given to us. And, and this is why, by the way, I, sh- I should mention here uh, that we have uh, printed and placed on the media table behind us a portion of our church bylaws. Appendix B is called Divorce, Remarriage, and Related Issues. It's interesting. This congregation has but one theological position paper outside of the three forms of unity, and it is this one. And so it's just uh, two pages Uh, well worth your read. And one of the statements that this appendix makes is this, for church members, divorce may not be pursued outside of and apart from the church. In other words, what we believe as a congregation and which is reflected in the confessions and in the scriptures is that the church must be part of an orderly proceeding if we're considering divorce even serious conflicts within marriage require following Jesus' formula for dealing with sin in Matthew chapter 18, which, as you, I think, will remember, includes potential involvement by church leaders, right? So you have a conflict within marriage, and you try to work it out yourselves. And by God's grace, often those conflicts are resolved. But if you can't, you follow Matthew 18, you say to your partner, we're, at, we're, we're not able to resolve this. I'm very concerned about a sin that I believe you've committed against me. We're not working it through. I need, I, we need help. And so you talk to a friend, a trusted friend or a counselor and bring that person into the marriage for witnessing and advice. And if it isn't resolved, you bring the matter to the church, not to the courts, not to the state. Bring the matter to the church. It is so obviously unwise for marital partners, as the confession says, to be left to their own wills and discretion when considering a divorce. It is so patently unwise. When, when, when you're seriously considering a divorce, how um, objective are you? Right? How, how neutral are, are you? How, how open are you? No, it's, it's muddied. It's messy. You've got hurt feelings. Perhaps you've been terribly wronged. It's unwise to have marital partners left to their own wills and discretion when considering a divorce. Bring the matter to the church when, when appropriate. Especially, I would suggest, in cases of what the confession calls willful desertion, the 1 Corinthians 7 possibility, especially in cases of, of desertion, the, ch- um, the church needs to be involved. I mean, willful desertion, let's be honest, is a fairly ambiguous phrase. I mean, and today, it seems like almost anything can, be, can fall under that category. You can't sort that out yourself. You're biased, 
And, and the first goal of the church should be to heal the breach. Now, of course, it's possible that the church may judge that a remedy is impossible or unwise or unsafe or whatever it might be. But the point here is, and please hear this and counsel your children on this and be committed to this, Christians should wait for the church to judge their marriage before pursuing a divorce unilaterally. Christians should wait for the church to judge their marriage before pursuing a divorce unilaterally. Obviously more could be said on that, but let's hasten to the last question. Divorce raises the other question, another question. Is remarriage permissible? And what we need to recognize as I think our starting point, as the, as the confession does here, is that in the Old Testament, adultery was a capital offense. The offender, the adulterer, would be stoned to death. Leviticus 20, verse 10. And so the confession, we, we think, and, and in fact, our, um, our uh, position paper on divorce, rem- uh, remarriage, and related issues affirms this. It is lawful for the innocent party, the person that we might call, using Old Testament concepts, the survivor of the marriage. It's lawful for the innocent party to marry another as if the offending party were dead, because that was the, uh, the civil understanding in the Old Testament. J.C. Ryle affirms that, I think, in helpful uh, words, saying this, unfaithfulness dissolves the marriage tie altogether and places the husband and wife once more in a position of unmarried people or of a widower or widow. And so our church, we believe in echoing scripture, believes that the answer to the question is yes, it is permissible to remarry after divorce under the proper conditions, which we'll want to consult the church on when we're deep in this kind of a situation. Let me sum up with this and encourage us to take this teaching um, in, in the uh, several directions that we ought to take it. First of all, God's teaching on marriage and divorce can train us to live not by our feelings, but by the eternal word of God. You know, none of this for Christians, none of this, I feel like one person should be able to marry whoever they want, or I feel so unhappy in this marriage, I can't go on. God's word trains us to live not according to our changing feelings, but according to the unchanging word of God. It can also help us practice real love and commitment, something that's so lacking in our day today. So God's words teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage can help us to have good relationships. But we also understand this, that marriage, as important as the theme is for society, for a church, for individuals, marriage is not the ultimate source of love. It just isn't. Married people recognize that. Everything I thought I was going to get in a marriage, I don't get. Marriage is not the ultimate source of love. An older person some years ago, unmarried person, once gave me a box of books. I was sorting through those books. And 
a typed out bookmark fell out of one of the books. And the bookmark was a quotation from Elizabeth Elliot, whose situation uh, may be familiar to you, lost her husband and went on to write on issues related to contentment and marriage and relationships and satisfaction in God and purity and so on. But Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, and this was precious to this single person, older person. The answer to our loneliness is love. Not our finding someone to love us. But our surrendering to the God who has always loved us with an everlasting love. We do need love. But what we, what we don't chiefly need is to find someone to love us. If that's our attitude, if that's our approach, if that's how we're going to experience love in this world, we will be disappointed. We need to be surrendering to the God who has always loved us with an everlasting love. So on this lesson, with this information from God's word, honor what God says about marriage. No matter how young or how old, how single or how married, honor what God says about marriage, but resolve your loneliness. Not in the arms of another person, but with the love of the triune God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift of faithful uh, teaching that we've received from those who have gone before us that we may learn from. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom on how to enjoy you and glorify you even in our closest relationships. We pray that you would bless our marriages and bless also our single people. We pray that all of us would would, uh, find our calling in the lives that you have given to us and help us to find joy in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.